minimalists. <laughs> oh, y'all, this is The Maximal, and we're here with Dr. Damon Korb. We're talking about raising an organized child. And there's so many directions that can go with this. We have some surprise questions here. But we do this little segment called More About Less, where we use an article as a jump-off point for discussion. And I found this article here in Oprah's magazine, and it's called Your K Kids Should Make Their Own Lunches Starting in Third Grade, This Doctor Says. And instead of just reading the whole article, by the way, we'll put a link to this in the show notes, I thought, Damon, you could talk about, about the philosophy behind this. So we want to give our, our, our children the opportunity to grow. We want to constantly push them, but not too hard, but just at their level. Mm -hmm. And by the time a child's second, third grade, they've got the planning skills to make their own lunch. Yeah. And so if you're doing that for them, you're not giving them the opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. Now, you can simplify it depending on your child. You could have a shelf in the pantry or a shelf in your refrigerator that tends to be kid-healthy snacks so that they're not just taking cookies to school. Right. But you know, think about the lessons they, they learn. They, they think about how much am I going to need? How much water should I pack? How, m how many snacks will I need to get through the day? Mm -hmm. I want the kids to be thinking about that mm -hmm. on their own so that they're learning a new planning, thinking ahead, forward thinking skill. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I, when I, I'm, Ella's right around that age where she could start packing her own lunch now, although then she would just eat it at home, which would be strange. <laughs> um, but so, so, I'm thinking about this and there's definitely going to be a learning curve at first, right? Because she's not used to, I, mean, I have no question that she's competent enough to do it. She can figure it out. But I think like many of us, we, we want someone to hand the answer to us. And the answer for her is, well, yeah, mom packs lunch, right? And, and that is one way to do it, but it is, I've never even thought about it. In a way, I'm, I'm depriving her of something. Mm. And, and how, do, how do you teach things? You, you scaffold. You gradually bring them to that point. So you wouldn't just say, okay, tomorrow you're making your lunch. See ya. Mm. And she's like, you know, I, I don't know how to put jelly on a piece of bread. Uh -huh. No, you, you show them and you cut up the carrots and you leave them in a certain space so that they can pack it. And, and so there's steps and stages yeah. towards getting them to where you want them to be mm. speaking of stages i, I know you, you say that as our kids get older our job as a parent sort of changes and, and we go from coach to manager to consultant can you talk about this exactly so when when kids are in elementary school i i think of our role is to be a coach mm -hmm. a coach teaches the lessons they call the plays they're they're in charge of pretty much everything that the, the team is doing as we get towards middle school I want parents to take a step back. They become more of the general manager. Mm -hmm. The general manager talks about the franchise. The mm. franchise needs to move in the direction of doing more homework. Mm. But they're not <laughs> saying we, we've got to spend this much time or this is when we're going to do it or here's how you do all your math. Mm -hmm. But we need to dedicate more time for a franchise on homework. Mm. And by the time your kids are in high school, you really want to start becoming a consultant. I'm here if you need me. Mm. I'm here to help you with whatever you need. Yeah. But, but let me know. Oh. This, now, is, this is great. Well, it, it's great because, you know, uh, having a child pack their lunch in the second or third grade, um, that, like you, you're saying, that seems like the appropriate time. And I think this is so helpful for parents because it's hard to know when it's the appropriate time to, like, let go and do things on their own. And that analogy you use is very, very helpful. And, and that's how I've written the book. I've written the book from um, infants 
to preschoolers, to uh, kindergartners, school-aged children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and we talk about applying the five steps, which are be consistent, introduce order, give everything a place, practice forward thinking, promote problem solving at, at each age level. Mm. It's the same five steps but you're applying them different, giving them more and more independence uh, mm. with, their, with their growth. And one thing to know that we're not just talking about age, it's really developmental level. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, right. so I, I see middle schoolers all the time that have the executive functions, the organizational skills of a seven-year-old or mm. an eight-year-old. And, and I think it, there's some secret oath that every teacher has sworn to in middle school that says, I'm going to get these kids ready to be independent by the time they get to high school. Mm. And so these mental organizational six-year-olds are being told that they have to take notes, they have to turn everything on, in on time, that there's a 50% penalty if anything's late. And it's just totally unrealistic for some of them. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do in this book is kind of say these are typical expectations, but really find where your child is mm -hmm. and push them at that level, not just because they're 12, teach them, treat them like a 12-year-old. Right. You have to figure out where they're at and push them as they need to be pushed. Yeah. Can we talk Absolutely. about parenting adults? Because that, that's the obvious you know, terminus of all of this. There still is a parent-child relationship, but we, I think we want to avoid, although this doesn't always happen, uh, when we were taking a break, you were you actually had a really good example where we sometimes we infantilize adult children of ours without even knowing that we're doing it, right? So I, when I turned sixteen, I got my driver's license. Right that day, yeah. I got my driver's license. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say half of my patients don't get their driver's license when they're sixteen. Mm. Wow. Why? Well, mm. because uh, their parents drive them everywhere. You know, for me, if I wanted to play on a competitive team, I was riding my bike and I had to mm. get there. Mm. And, and, you know, parents drive our kids across town to put them on the right team. They, they do everything for them. Mm -hmm. And so the 16-year-olds are like, hey, I got my phone. I got my games. I don't have to leave the house. I don't need to drive anywhere. And if I need to drive, mom will go get me something mm. at In-N-Out. Mm. Yeah. So, so it's important to push and encourage your kids to um, do what they're capable of doing or it increases the likelihood they'll end up on your couch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about um, what you do at the Center for Developing Minds, which, by the way, I love the sort of double entendre there of developing minds. And uh, Anyway, um, can you talk about y your work there? So I'm a behavioral developmental pediatrician. Uh, we have a team, an interdisciplinary team of clinicians that have – we have psychologists and educators and speech pathologists. And um, – we work with a range of, of students from zero to young adults that struggle at school is how I look at it. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to see a lot of autism, learning disabilities, anxiety, depression, ADHD, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and just kids who have difficult behavior, who, who aren't getting along well at home. And you know, one of the reasons I wrote my book is because no matter what diagnosis they were coming in with, really it was the executive function flaws that the parents were frustrated with. Mm -hmm. How can I get my child to clean their room? Mm. How can I get my child to listen to me in the morning? How can I get my child to go to bed on time? How can I get my child to not overreact every time her, his friend does something he doesn't want to do? Right. That was all driven by the executive functions. And mm. so I was giving the same advice to family after family. And when I'd sit on the sidelines of my kids' sport teams, the parents would have the same complaints of their neurotypical children. Mm -hmm. and, and so I wanted to share this message with as many families as I could that there's certain basic things that you can do to help build those executive functions. Mm. 
So when you're talking about kids who, who struggle, um, it almost feels as though, in my own life at least, quite often it's society, and I'm a, a part of that society, that is creating these struggles for our kids. Like it, it, Whether it is you know, the peer pressure or you know, societal pressure to achieve a status or, or you know, win something, you know, a competition, um, there, there is there's a whole lot of pressure and it feels to me that most of this pressure is sort of self-induced in a way. I think there's, it's, it's such a complicated point that you bring up. I mean, certainly we've got Instagram and, and Facebook and TikTok and we're looking at all these airbrushed, perfect people yeah. and, and kids feel that pressure to be like that. Yeah. Cer- at a very young age. I've noticed even in my seven-year-old, there's pressure there. Mm. And certainly in, um, in schools, we're feeling like we have to be on every support team and every you know, speech and debate club and every choir. And we have to do all these things. And, and kids aren't getting enough sleep because they're working so hard. So uh, I don't know if there's any direct action but I, I, that is causing this um, pressure collectively it's all around kids and so i do think there's a lot of kids that really really struggle to have perspective mm-hmm. about what they want and what's important yeah mm. I, I think that a lot of the struggles though that they are they're injected by the expectations of others and uh, of society and certainly of, of parents and sometimes our kids are struggling because we have forced the struggle onto them mm. I, uh, I joke with my kids that uh, I don't play the lottery unless it's at least $500 million. <laughs> because <'cause laughs> I don't want to win one of those little lotteries and have all the other lottery people look down on me because I, I, you know, I just won $10 million. I'm not winning unless I go big. Believe. And, and, and I think that's the pressure, right? We see more and more. We're exposed to all of this on the media, on TV. We think everybody needs to be the, yeah. the number one job that teens want right now. They want to be Instagram famous. That's yeah. what they want. And yeah. that's, that's not a realistic goal. The no. realistic goal is you find something you believe in and you, you work on it and you create a craft and you become excellent at it. And then if people like it on Instagram or wherever, great. Right. Mm-hmm. But and, it starts with the belief. And yeah. if they don't, it's, it, it still can be great as well. And I think when we tether the expectation to whatever outcome that is, and it's really hard because I could say this to, uh, hey Ella, don't tether an expectation to you, <laughs> and, and and she would just sort of look at me and blink twice if I say something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, truly understanding that, and, and the weird here's the weird thing about it: kids, little kids, before age four especially, and you know a whole lot more about this than I do. But I've just seen I, I've seen a sort of empirical evidence of this that kids really do understand the present moment way better than we do and and so somehow we we almost condition that out of them in a way where by teenage years everything is an expectation right three-year-olds rarely have an expectation for anything Mm -hmm. it is constant doing hence the need for boundaries but beyond those or within those boundaries it's always in the moment. Even now at age seven, if I ask Ella what she had for lunch, she's like, I don't have any idea what I had for lunch because she doesn't think that way. It's not about reminiscing about the thing that happened in the past or constantly glancing at the horizon. It's about what's going on right now. That's a beautiful way to live. 
and um, I just hope that I'm not, you know, uh, beating that out of her, you know, metaphorically, of you course. You just covered a lot of child development there. So, <laughs> so when we're talking about two and three-year-olds, they're not very good at hindsight. They're, they're very much in the moment. They live in the moment. Mm. And if their expectation isn't met, that's when they have tantrums, mm. right? They expect it to go a certain way. They don't have a tool chest of options that they can turn to when they're disappointed. And they explode. And they continue to do that till they're about four years old. Yeah. And then they start coming up with options. They're able to solve problems at, at, at age four a little better. And so tantrums go down. But if you have an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old who's having two, three tantrums a week, well, there's kind of a three or four year developmental delay in their ability to problem solve when they're feeling frustrated. Mm. And so that's those are the kids that often need help because they haven't made that kind of progress. Yeah. Yeah. And and yet. I. I worry about for myself, even, you know, set aside the, the kid thing for a moment, but like if I'm constantly looking at the horizon. You know, the analogy I use is driving a car, right? If you're always looking in the rear view, you're going to crash. If you're always looking far off on the horizon, you're going to crash. Nothing wrong with glancing in the rear view or looking toward the horizon, but we're missing the road that's right there in front of us. And of course, now we're more distracted than ever. We have all, it's, it's not just, uh, yeah, I, the, I guess you would extend that analogy even farther. You would just be there. Now they're just flashing billboards all along the road as well that are keeping us from the, the beauty that's right there in front of us. Mm. I'm going to keep bringing you back to child development because I love it. But um, the same part of our brain that it has to do with planning and thinking ahead is the exact same part of our brain that we use for hindsight. So mm. if you're disappointed that your kids aren't learning lessons, the way you do is you practice planning with them. Hey, we're going to the beach next week. What should we bring? Mm. What, 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 what do you think would be a good idea to take there? Wait, don't you think we need swimsuits? You know, that kind of conversation with your kids, you're actually building their ability to learn from their mistakes. Mm. The answer is always a question in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm getting from you. And uh, it's freeing, but I can imagine how maddening it's going to be <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> because it, it's... It, it, when you think of like great Zen teachers or, or Jesuit priests, uh, they're almost always answering in question form. These little Zen Cohens or whatever. They, they, it's always this, this uh, inquisitive approach because mm. it's so highly individual, right? Mm. It, it, not only if I give you the answer, do you not learn anything? Is a teach a man to fish sort of thing. But also like my answer might actually be di different from your answer. So by asking the question, it's the reason like our last film, it starts with a question. How might your life be better with less? That is uh, what the whole film was basically about. Now, it's not really a how-to question. It's a, there's a why disguised in that question. Like, why would your life be better with less? And, and asking that question is much more powerful than me saying, well, Damon, here are the seven ways your life will be better with less. Like, well, that might not be true for you because mm. the benefits for me are different for you. And I suppose that is true with every single kid, even within the same household. You have five kids. I, I imagine when you ask the same question, all five of them, different answers are appearing. Yeah. Right. It's, it's important. It's important. to. It's freeing if you can 
truly figure out who your child is and what they like, then all of a sudden you don't have to sign them up for everything. Mm. You don't have to give them piano lessons if they have no interest and no talent and no drive to do piano. You figure out what they like and then you help them focus and channel their energy. And now we're not running around all the time as a parent trying to do everything for a child. Yeah. And yet at the same time, I think about like Tiger Woods or Serena Williams where they had these parents who in some ways seem to be living their dream vicariously through their children. And strangely, we see these success cases, and I say success very loosely here because, you know, I, I look at Tiger Woods uh, during his peak. He didn't seem very successful in uh, any other aspect of his life. It was, it was a, a, a bonfire of discontent. A- and yet um, they were driven from a very young age. Now, I don't know, maybe Tiger Woods would have really enjoyed golf regardless uh, of whether or not his father uh, started making him chip shots at 18 months old. But, but it wouldn't have been the same level of um, obsession, certainly. Mm-hmm. And, so, and sometimes I guess what we're doing is we're instilling, uh, unbeknownst to us, we're instilling obsessions in our kids. Um, and the question isn't like, well, what's the healthy obsession? But, but uh, maybe the question is, it has something to do with recognizing the patterns that we're creating in our kids. Mm. Have you ever heard of Eric Woods or Lucy Williams? No. No, because uh, only Tiger Woods and Serena Williams are, they're two out of millions, right? That yeah. made it to that point. Yeah. And, and to find that unique child with that unique ability you can't aspire to recreate what they've created out of the billions of people on earth. Those are the two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, it, parents need to take a step back. You know, they've, they, there was a study where they looked at parents of third and fourth graders and they asked them, do you think your child has the ability to play collegiate sports? I use sports analogies cause I just enjoy sports, but do you think your child has the ability to, to play collegiate sports? And you know, the reality is it's like, 0.4% of kids in school have the, uh, make it to collegiate sports. Oh, wow. Um, 90% say yes. Oh, Cause we don't have a realistic expectation of what it takes to get there, but I'm going to make my kid play piano every day cause she's the next Mozart. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. And, and of course, like without even stopping to ask, like, is this what they desire? Right. Or, mm-hmm. or is this simply me mapping my desires onto my offspring? My child wins yeah. the jogathon. I feel great. Right. It's a personal dad trophy, <laughs> but you know what? None of my trophies as a kid, do I hold on to? They're not what's important. What's really important is like I, I told you earlier, my, my daughter solving problems, mm-hmm. figuring things out for themselves, mm-hmm. speaking up. And, and then I go, gosh, I'm really proud of, of the child that, that this, young adult is now becoming. I mm. mean, it's, it, that's the stuff that's important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I love how, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about a couple of things here where as parents, you don't want to thrust your expectations on your kids and really you can help them come up with their own expectations by getting them involved as much as possible through these different development stages. And yeah, that's, that's very enlightening for me as a, as a future parent, hopefully. Um, to, to, yeah, find different ways to get your kids involved, listen to what they, they like, and, um, yeah, instead of thrusting what you want for them onto listen, them. Listen, yeah. listen, listen. Yeah. So important. Sarah has a question for us, Ryan. Do you have any tips for raising a confident, independent child? Josh, what did your mom do to make you so confident and independent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't follow that strategy. <laughs> she drank a lot. Right. Um, no, um. I... Yeah, 
it, what's fascinating is is you do see this and and um I don't know how gender plays a role in any of this and, and it's you you know a lot more about that maybe we could talk about that but when we say confident what do we even mean by that I think when I think of confidence I I mean a a sort of healthy indifference to an outcome mm. Mm. I love the way you you use words um <laughs> the uh I I think that makes sense uh when I think about uh confidence I feel like somebody who can look at a problem and and not be afraid to try to solve it. Mm. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. So, so independence comes from what, where? Uh, experience, practice. It's, it's not, uh, I, suppo- I suppose that some people might skew more independent than, than others. Um, but I guess when we're thinking about trying to allow our kids to be independent, it really is that it's uh, you know, Ryan and I will say letting go isn't something you do. It's something you stop doing. And, and it's like trying to force your child to be independent. It seems sort of seems uh, like a, it seems a bit quixotic to me. Mm. You know, um, we, you, we brought up your childhood. Uh, you had a lot of experience and practice being independent. Yes. Uh, not necessarily for the best reasons. Right. Um, what we'd like to do is give our kids that opportunity to have experience and practice at independence without the traumas and the other you know baggage that that are added in there sometimes when we neglect or or don't give the care that our kids need yeah but there's a difference between meeting their emotional needs and doing everything for them right right and so so there's you know ryan used the word i think turmoil yeah i was using that loosely no i I know i I don't want to cause turmoil for my children i know i know (laughs) And, and so like but there, there's something there wh- where, you know, I, I don't know what the word is, but, but there is a, a, a comfort zone that we want to get them out of. So, so if anything, you want them to experience a, a, a type of discomfort from yeah. which they grow, mm-hmm. because if they don't experience that discomfort, uh, and, and, and there could be too much discomfort. You and I grew up in turmoil, like right. really serious you know, trauma and and that's that's not ideal but the other side of that spectrum is pure comfort uh pure pleasure it's it's the sort of hedonic adaptation mm-hmm. if we do that for our kids then we're we're also setting them up for a a type of dependence we look at anxiety on a curve a little okay. bit of anxiety is a good thing it mm-hmm. drives us to do i don't want to disappoint my teacher i don't want to disappoint my parents i want to do a good job it helps me to to do better mm. but too much anxiety causes us to do worse. Mm. We're stressed, we're paralyzed, we can't work. And if we have toxic anxiety, we release so much cortisol that we damage our brain. Mm. So let's get back to child development. We talk about um, newborn babies. How can you help, how can you apply these steps to newborns? Because newborns are already learning. Mm. Number one, you be consistent. When your baby cries, you pick them up. When your baby, when that doesn't work, you change their diaper. That doesn't work, you feed them, you burp them, and then you go back to step one again. Mm. And you do that consistently over and over again. Mm. And if you meet their needs, they learn cause and effect. By the time they're six months old, they understand cause and effect. You ring a bell, they're gonna look to where that is. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh, They're gonna know that if they push a button, it makes a noise. They learn that consistency. Mm. But if you do the opposite and you stick them in an orphanage where three kids share a bed and the only time you pick them up is three times a day, those cortisol levels go up really high. They're toxic, especially to this prefrontal lobe that really helps your organized thinking. Mm. And we often see permanent 
damage to their brains because of high levels of cortisol. Mm. You know, Ryan, uh, we did a podcast recently with Rich Roll. We were on his his show and uh, we were talking about childhood trauma because uh, in the film I, I talk about my first uh, or most recent film. I talk about my first memory is of my father extinguishing a cigarette on my mother. And there's certainly trauma from that, but it's weird how trauma can be perspectival in a way. Like, like I don't remember that as a particularly traumatic event. I'm sure there's, you know, there's residue uh, of trauma there. There are other things that seem far less traumatic that I know I was traumatized by more. I'll give you an example. Um, I, my mom was an alcoholic the, from basically age four to age four, when I was 14. And then one day she just sort of stopped drinking. And I was more traumatized. I'd come home every day because she had stopped hundreds of times before, right? And so, like, I was just waiting for the shoe to drop. And so there was a weird sort of trauma in – it was actually harder for me when she was sober because I was constantly anticipating today's the day I come home, I put the key in the door, and she's passed out on the couch drunk again. Mm. And and there was a – A fear. Yeah, yeah, a, a fear that um, was, I, I, I don't think I knew what it did to me for many, many years, right? And so um, when we're talking about raising children, and, and I think one of the things that, that we're talking about here is not making them afraid. Mm. We, um, we're touching on resiliency, Okay. And when we talk about resiliency, we find everybody's a little different. Mm. Uh, there are some kids that have that same type of fear about the school alarm bell going off or the seam on their socks. Oh, no, this is going to be awful again. I can't tolerate this. And every time they go to put their socks on, it's a traumatic experience for them because that little itchiness for them is overwhelming. Mm. And their amygdala fires and they're emotionally just lost. And other people can tolerate a number of big hits in their life and do okay. But the ones that you, you brought up, the chronic ones, mm-hmm. where it's there and it's hitting you every day, those ones tend to be the most damaging. Yeah, because it, it develops this pattern. And, and, and so that, yeah, it's digging the groove and the record. And, and once it's there, that thing is hard to change. Mm, yeah. But that, isn't that fascinating how one child can experience the exact same thing as another one? Yeah. And, and it may be just a subtle experience for that child. Uh, and it really shows you have to, again, understand your child's temperament. You have to understand the differences because everybody, all five of my kids, they're different. And I need to parent them all differently. Yeah. And they deal with anxiety. You, you talked about a little bit of anxiety being appropriate, but little bit it changes for each one of them, right? It, with Ryan, I mean, Ryan performs better under stress and anxiety. <laughs> we worked in the corporate world together, and it was always like the last three days of the month for him were like the best three days for yeah. sales or whatever because it was like he needed that, that pressure. For me, it was always the first three days of the month. Like I'm going to – I'll get in there, and I'll, I'll start out the month you're really strong. And, and right. so like it was, it, was, it was the appropriate amount of stress for for you know, optimal performance right and that varies dramatically person by person yeah it makes me think even about the word trauma how you can't really compare traumas um I mean, you have five kids like yeah different things are going to be traumatic uh they're, they're going to affect them differently as far as trauma goes so yeah um being able to respect the fact that the seam in the sock might be just as traumatic to one child 
as Josh uh, coming home to his mother being drunk on the couch. I mean, maybe that's a little extreme. But it could be. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, we, and we don't get to choose how our kids react to trauma. Like, that would be nice right. if I could pick <laughs> right, it. Right. But yeah. it doesn't work that way. We got a question here from Jeff. Well, actually, I, I want to say one thing about Sarah's question. And you tell me if, if this makes any sense, uh, uh, Damon. Instead of focusing on confident and independent, what about focusing first on the confidence and maybe the independence can follow? Because when I think about this question with Sarah, um, letting her children do things during these development stages, that's going to give them confidence, which will eventually lead to independence, right? Absolutely. Pushing them at the right level, Mm -hmm. sticking them in things that are way too difficult because this is where you want them to be, Mm -hmm. breaks down their confidence. But pushing them right, letting them make lunches at three years, uh, I mean, in third grade, Nice job. I'm glad you can do that. That's really that really helps mom. Thank you for doing that. That gives them confidence. Yeah. So focus maybe on one of one of those things first, Sarah. All right, Jeff. How do you deliver difficult news to young children? Mm. I mean, I guess it depends on what the news is, right? Yeah. I mean, I just always tell Ella that the stock market went down today. <laughs> <laughs> I just tell Ella if you don't clean your room, you're not going to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. No, no, no. I, I, I would never do that mm. again. Um, <laughs> no. So, so yeah. D- mm. I think as parents, I can tell you what I do, and maybe you just you, you let me know how how much I'm screwing Ella up with this. Uh, I've, she's gotten to an age where she'll start asking things about you know sex and and other things where she doesn't really have a grasp on it, and. I learned this from my wife, Bex, but Bex will sometimes just say, are you sure you want the answer to that? Mm. And, and she sets it up in a way where it's like, hey, I'm going to explain. I'll explain whatever you want. I mean, in a clinical sort of way. But like, um, are you asking the question just to ask a question or are you really searching for an answer? And what I love about your approach to the, this question asking quite often, and this goes back to the previous question as well, it seems to me that like one of the best confidence builders is simply yeah, allowing them to explore with those questions. When it comes to delivering difficult news to a child, what, what do you say, Doc? So again, it really depends on the child, depends on their age. Mm. Um, we've had a lot of bad news in the last year mm. and people have lost their jobs, out of work, people are getting sick, grandparents are dying. There's a lot of terrible things and, um, and kids see it. Don't think not mentioning it, they don't see it. But at the right. same time, you don't want to terrorize them. You don't want to have their, the news on 24-7 listening to all these bad stories. Um, so, you know, for a little child, you tell them just what you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, daddy's job, he's not working there anymore. He's going to be home and get to spend more time with you until we find another job. Mm-hmm. But a teenager was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to have enough money to buy new clothes or get the things that I want. And they're going to have a lot more questions and a lot more worries. So you're going to have a much more detailed discussion about the realities of this. But at the same time, it's important for you to show them that you have confidence. We're going we're gonna to pull through this. We've pulled through other things because mm-hmm. that's one thing as a parent we can offer is perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've been through a lot of things and we know we're going to get through this next thing. Yeah. Maybe uh, a, a piece to this too is also talking with your children like, you know, you deliver the bad news and then discussing like, hey, how does this make you feel? And then that way you can kind of address any negative emotions or trauma that you're really worried about your your child going through. Um, yeah. and, if, and if the kid says, okay, 
Yeah. You don't have to keep probing. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I, th- I find it fascinating because I, I'm exactly with Ryan on this because even in my, when I, when he read the question, I first hear it as, even though the question says, how do you deliver difficult news? Ryan even reposited it there as, as, as bad news, right? Mm. Because we unfortunately conflate difficult with bad Mm. and even the losing of one's job or something like that, which is difficult news to communicate. It doesn't have to be communicated as a bad thing Mm. because it's not, obviously it's not morally bad to, to, for one to lose their job, but also understanding that many of the best things that have ever happened to me in my life and Ryan in his life are birthed out of those, those, those sort of pivot points and, and those difficult. You know, difficult situations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got a question here from Ashwin. How would you support a child if they decided to rebel against everything they were taught as they grew older? Well, if you're my father, you just stop talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in your book? If I don't laugh, if I don't laugh, I'll cry. Uh-huh. <laughs> what a fascinating question there. Uh, so, I, I think what they mean by by this question, Ashwin means, is they've rebelled against everything their parents have taught them. But, and and I certainly had a point of the thumbing my nose at at, at the parents, um, sort of thing. But also. Man, it's been wonderful to rebel against everything that society has taught me mm. because society has taught me to go into debt, to consume, to be happy, to that success equals trinkets, money, and a job title, that you are your identity, your degree, your clothing, your car, whatever, uh, the contents of your wallet. And, and so rebelling against that has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me, but that's only come about through sort of intentional living. My, my guess is this question here is, Hey, I've, I've taught all the good things to my kid and now they're doing all the bad things that aren't good for the good things. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I see families every day. I see my clinical patients all the time. And that question is so loaded the first thing yeah. that comes to mind is, uh, are the expectations realistic? I mean, clearly this person believes that everything they're asking of their child is the right thing, but maybe it's not. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and then the second thing that comes to mind is what's the cultural expectations? Because what if this family, uh, the parents were brought up in India mm. and now they're raising a child in America. And so that child has that cultural uh, difference and difference in experience mm-hmm. and sees what their friends do and wants to just fit in with mm-hmm. their peers, which is part of growing up. You know, as, as yeah. we grow up, we are supposed to separate from our parents and find that peer group that, that works with us. And there's this whole cultural conflict it could be creating. Um, mm-hmm. So and and so, like you said, some of that rebellion is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's assume this father is doing everything right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and their child is rebelling against everything. Uh, I'd see a doctor. I mean, that, that mm. concerns me if they're mm. oppositional, if they have reflexive negativity, no matter yeah. what, do you want to go to a restaurant? No. And then you go to the restaurant they're probably okay. But, but that reflexive negativity, that, that worries me. And, and that child is probably really difficult to parent. Yeah. But so I encourage this parent to step back and really look at their expectations and see if they're realistic 
And if they're not sure, they can talk to a pediatrician. They can talk to a therapist. They can talk to some of their friends. Mm. It's, you know, it's really common that I run into parents. And, and one, of the, the, one of the advice I give to all parents is you should be doing imaginative pretend play with your kids. Mm. What does that mean? When they're five, six, seven, you should, you know, pretend you're a, a bad guy or mm. pretend you're uh, working at a store or pretend you're at a restaurant or having a tea party. Yeah. Have a tea party. Right. Yeah. Because what that does is it teaches them to problem solve prior to going into those real situations. Uh, they're practicing mm. the real world through their pretend. You want an active magi- imagination. It's you know, when you're on a computer. So much of what you do, you learn is linear. I do this, then I do this, and then I do this mm-hmm. in order to get the bonus coin. Mm-hmm. But when you're pretending, you're thinking about what are all the possibilities? Mm-hmm. What are all the ways that I could solve this? Mm-hmm. And, and it's a totally different way of thinking. And what amazes me is when I bring that up to parents, how many parents will say, I, I don't know, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm wow. like, that's bread and butter parenting. Mm-hmm. Is You should be pretending with your child. Uh-huh. But so many parents don't have a understanding of what that is because they go to work, both parents work, they come home, they try to get their kids ready to bed, and they don't see other kids and they don't see other parents. Our communities are more and more disjointed, but we need to really kind of lean on parenting experience over the decades. I think something for Ashwin too is, you know, ask yourself, is your child happy or, or are they doing what they feel like they need to do to live a meaningful life? Because when I think about my relationship with my father, um, because I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, uh, he will not associate with me. Um, he doesn't consider if I'm actually living, uh, you know, a, a good life or if I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Um, he is essentially thrusting his expectations on me. I'm not meeting his expectations, so then um, he's he doesn't he literally doesn't talk to me. Um, now, if I was some kind of like heroin addict and I was constantly begging, you know, uh, asking him for money and going to his house and stealing things, I mean, that's another side of this, the spectrum, mm-hmm. then maybe it is appropriate to like, you know, step back and, and uh, ask, okay, what's going on with this rebellion? And I love how you, you know, you suggested that maybe you seek some professional help if there is some kind of extreme situation. But the idea of rebelling not being good or bad, mm-hmm. I love that. Um, and this goes with kind of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks with these value judgments. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear the word uh, rebel, especially when it comes to a child and you associate it with it, it being a bad thing. But Ashwin, it may be a good thing. Yeah, sometimes that rebelling is simply getting on the roller coaster and moving that bar, right? Mm-hmm. It's right. The, the slight rebellion. And, and, you know, to use some extreme examples there, Ryan, like, if, if your kid is rebelling and sort of gone off the deep end, our friend Rob Bell says sometimes you have to love someone from a distance. And mm-hmm. that can become true at some point where if there's destructive behavior and you have this, uh, this uh, adult who is you know, coming back and, as you said, stealing your, your stuff, yeah. then, then you know, sometimes it's, uh, uh, the loving thing to do is to create, to create some space. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, gosh. Creating space, uh, you know, one of the things I see often is when parents get frustrated with their kids' behavior, they remove the door to their bedroom. And, uh, oh. and now kids don't have space anymore. Mm. They don't have their own space. And I think, you know, we have to remember that our kids are individuals. And, um, mm. you know, the only way you'd possibly think of removing the doors if you really truly felt that they couldn't be safe. That was the only way you could keep them safe. Mm. But otherwise, they need to be their own individual. They need to have their own space. They need to have their privacy. Yeah. Uh, it's important. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so you know, we hear this term a lot now, helicopter parenting, right? And, 
and I don't even know what that Ti- means. Tiger moms. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Lawnmower moms. Right? <laughs> what, what's a, wait, what's a tiger mom and what's a lawnmower mom? The lawnmower mom uh, knocks everybody over that's in the way of their child. Okay, <laughs> the and a tiger ti- mom. The tiger mom does everything they can to make their child be the best at something. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And then the helicopter parent is just hovering. Yep, right, they're, calling, right. they're calling the college dean saying, my, I'm not sure my child is getting enough sleep. Can you make sure my child's doing this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... and I'm sure there is a healthy amount of some of that, but like it goes back to the safety side of things, right? Um, but far beyond that, it's it can be stifling, right? And so when we think we're helping, we're often hurting. I think that's true with adults, but I think it's especially true with children. Earlier, mm-hmm. there was a question about confidence. Uh-huh. What does it say to your child if if I'm calling the the dean or your mm-hmm. coach to get you more playing time, or I'm calling? What does it say to your child? I don't think you can do this. Yeah, I'm going to have to take care of it for you. Mm. Yeah, what's the implicit message behind the actions that I'm taking? Exactly. Here? Yeah. If my co- child comes to me and says I'm not getting enough playing time, I say. I think so too, but what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Mm. You know, what are you going to do about it? And I want them to go talk to the coach themselves, even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't work, even if they go and they lay their hearts out to the coach and they tell them everything mm-hmm. and they, they go and they practice free throws every night and they don't get more practice. Just the act of learning how to go talk to your coach and speak up for yourself is way more important than the extra seven minutes a mm. game they're going to get playing basketball in, mm. in fourth grade. Yeah. 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 The, the the two words that have come up a lot with us recently, Ryan, is I understand. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this with Ella as well. So like if she were to come to me and say, you know, I'm not getting enough playing time on my soccer team, I, I would just say I understand. Mm. And, and and at first that was puzzling to her because it was like she was coming asking for a, a solution, right? And m- me simply saying I understand was like, okay, like I understand that you have a complaint about this, but the ball is now in your court. We can talk about it, but ultimately there's uh, you're the one who has to do something about this. Yeah. And, and, and I can, I can function in that sort of manager slash consultant role at some point and, and you know, provide that guidance where needed, but I'm not going to do it for you. Right. Yeah. I can give you the template yeah. if, if you need to. Yeah. So, so I've noticed that we had her start washing dishes right around age, I don't know, five probably. And she does a horrible job. <laughs> <laughs> and she still sucks at washing dishes. Uh-huh. And I but it's not like you just sit her on a stool and like <laughs> hand her a sponge and soap and like go and watch TV or something. <laughs> chain, chain her to the sink. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be spotless when I get back. Right. No, I, but I've, you know, and so there's a piece of me because I have OCD and so I want everything to be, um, you know, I have my own sort of yeah, your uh, own expectations. Yes, mm. yeah, 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 and, and perfectionism, etc. And, and of course, you know, that's not the point of having her wash washing the dishes. Isn't the point of her washing the dishes, right? Mm. It, the, the, that is the the task of oh, there are things I oh, there are things I have to do in life. There, there you know, there's a consequence of dirtying a dish is it becomes clean mm-hmm. afterward, right? And so, I found that when I'm uh, setting those expectations with her, I, the the best thing that I can do is radically lower my expectations um, if I want a favorable outcome. Right. You're teaching the lesson of that it's important to clean up after dinner. Yeah. Mm. If she's not perfect at it at seven, who cares, mm-hmm. right? If you need to get up at 11 o'clock to go rewash the dishes, do it if that helps your perfectionism, <laughs> right? But But she feels really good that she helped out the family exactly. and participated. And thank you very much for 
for being a great child. I remember yeah. one of her first phrases was, can I help? Mm. And so like... Keeper, uh, don't throw that one back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I, I think... and. At first, though, I, it was it was annoying to me again because of my own expectations, my own standards of, uh, which is fine. It's from it's fine for me to have those expectations of me or my own standards for me, but those standards are also adjustable, you know, especially for a, a three-year-old or whatever. Mm. We got a question here from Sandboxen. All right, I'm dealing with a lot of anger in my five-year-old. So what tips do you have for parents on how to understand and engage with our children's emotions better? What I like about this question is, is yeah, it brings up an emotion we feel like we need to. In fact, what does it say here? Um, does it say deal with? or uh, Anyway, um, understand. Oh, that's, that's how to understand. That's even better. Mm-hmm. But the, we never ask this question if you replace the word anger with like happiness or joy. It, <laughs> You wouldn't be writing in and saying, I'm dealing with a lot of joy in my five-year-old. What tips do you have to engage with our children's emotions? But in a way, that's an emotion I want to engage with just as much as the, as, as, as the so-called negative emotions. And I, I know as an adult, you know, it's understanding that I'm, I'm not angry. Uh, anger has arisen in me. It's not that I'm the angry person, but the anger has arisen. But um, I don't know how that translates as well to kids. Hmm. So um, anger is a reflection of how they're dealing with a situation. They're frustrated. Now, they may deal with it differently and have joy. But in this case, we're dealing with it with frustration. Now, why do kids get frustrated? Let's go back to the steps that I write about in the book. Um, They aren't very good at planning or anticipating. Mm -hmm. So that many things seem like surprises but they like routine and they like expectations. So the more consistent you can be as a parent, the more routine, the more predictable that you can be, Mm. the less opportunity you have for your child to become frustrated and get upset. Mm. So you fall back on these basics. You're consistent, you have your routines, you follow through, and then around age five, but it's early, you start teaching them to solve problems. Mm -hmm. How do you solve problems? So one of the things we do is called collaborative problem solving. Mm -hmm. And I might, say to my child who's watching a show and I say, turn off the TV, it's time to come to dinner. And all of a sudden I see her start to freak out. I might say, I empathize. Wow, you're looking really upset. Mm. Because empathy kind of calms the storm. You can, and you give them a word that they can later use when they're feeling that way instead of acting. Mm-hmm. You're looking really upset. So the first thing is you empathize. Mm-hmm. The second thing you do is you try to help them articulate the problem. What's bothering you so much? I want to watch more TV. Wow, it sounds like you really want to watch more TV, but it's six o'clock and our family always eats dinner at six o'clock because we're consistent. Mm -hmm. Our family always eats dinner at six o'clock. You want to watch TV. um, It's six o'clock time for dinner. And then you invite them to solve it. Mm -hmm. What should we do? What do you want to do? And when I talk to parenting groups, they say, wait, you can't negotiate with your kids. I'm not negotiating. They're coming to dinner at six Mm o'clock, but I love them to learn how to say, can I record this? Can I watch this after after we eat can because that's what you do on the playground is you figure out a way to to give your playmate what they want and still get what you want and i want them to learn how to do that Mm -hmm. coming to dinner at 6 15 isn't giving me what i want so it's not a negotiation they're coming at six Uh but is there a way that they can turn turn their own mental channel yeah the the analogy to that is if i'm watching tv and uh my daughter comes in and changes the channel flips me out 
Yeah. Right. But if she says in three minutes, can I watch something else? I'm usually fine with it because mm-hmm. I'm not watching anything good. I'm just kind of watching, but don't change my channel. Right. And that's what it feels like to a kid who doesn't anticipate an outcome mm. is you're coming in, you're changing their channel. I was just going to be doing this. I was just about to watch my hundredth show in a row. Uh-huh. And, and that's their expectation and you're shifting it. So if you can prepare them and help them, then they deal better with the emotions. And, and mm. five years old is young. I'm not expecting every five-year-old to be able to solve that problem, but you can gradually work with them. You can give them a few options. Here's mm. some choices of things you can do so yeah. that we learn to, to problem solve our own things by the time we're seven, eight. I love how the problem solving just keeps coming up with, with every single question. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm really getting from, from both of these podcasts is that uh, the more you can help your child problem solve and, and work with them, the the more they're going to be able to deal with this stuff. But uh, the one thing I will say about uh, Sandboxen's question here, the worst thing you can do, I think, when a child gets angry is respond with anger back. Mm. Like that's going to just amplify everything. Tells them, I don't know how to handle this situation. I'm going to freak out too. Right. You think right? I know how to handle this situation? <laughs> right. right. But if you can, okay, you're freaking out. Mm-hmm. You're calm. It's mm-hmm. saying to them, I got this. I'm under control. You may not be, but I got this. Yeah. Yeah. Last night, Ella was about watching her videos. She said, I I hate when you tell me to stop watching videos. It makes me want to get revenge. (laughs) (laughs) What did you say to that? I understand. (laughs) As you say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the, the I understand and as you say is that I've noticed that like, because a lot of it was me responding in anger. And the way that manifested in me was uh, controlling the situation. I'm going to control this, tell you what to do. <laughs> that that was never helpful. But it's always been, if, I, if she says I'm going to get revenge, and I just say, as you say, <laughs> she has nowhere to go with that, right? And she's like, oh. And, and like, it's sort of, what I found is like, it's almost like, letting the fire burn out in a way because it's, it's a quick flame too. But, but also if you can head that off by saying, okay, why is she getting uh, so frustrated when I tell her to turn this off? Mm-hmm. Maybe she didn't expect mm-hmm. that turning off. The, the kids have lousy sense of time. Mm-hmm. It's not until about age seven where they really start having a sense of time. Yeah. So if you're expecting her to think, I've got to have this off afterwards, um, you know, TV shows these days bleed into the next show. So it feels like it's never done, right? It's five seconds on Netflix and the next show is on and all of a yeah. sudden you're watching. Mm-hmm. I like One of the reasons I like DVR is is if my child asks, can I watch a show? Or when they were little, they don't ask anymore. Um, <laughs> I would say, yeah, you can watch two Blue's Clues. You know, you, and then they, they get it. That's what they can watch. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah. We got a question here from Christian. <clears throat> How can we as parents help messy kids be less messy Aside from being an example ourselves. I, I like that because the implicit question of this is like, don't tell me that I need to also be less messy or whatever. Right. Uh, and, and also what they're saying is I get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. They lead with your own behavior, but my kid is messy. Mm-hmm. Now what? Yeah. So we build that visual cortex. We build that visual processing system. The one that has to do with space. And we do that from the time they're very young. We show them black and white objects so they get a sense of, of dimension and space. And, uh, and we, um, as they get older, uh, we have them track moving objects, balloons that fall through the sky so that they're building that visual cortex. Mm. As they get older, we give everything a place. Mm. So with my two-year-old, we had stations. 
Mm. This is where your balls go. This is where you um, you eat your food. This is where we read stories. This is where you sleep. And we, in a sense, rotate them from one station to the next. Mm. Um, but by doing that, they start to recognize that things have a location. Things have a space. Um, as they get older, one of the pitfalls we fall into is we get our kids everything. Mm. And when you do that, it becomes almost impossible to recognize how to give everything a space. Yeah. Uh, I like to recommend you know, having five or ten toys out and everything else boxed up and put on the shelf. Mm. And if they want, if they're done, then they say, okay, we can clean up one of these and we can get out something else. Mm -hmm. So that they recognize that any task has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's a different um, of the steps. Everything has an order. Beginning, middle, and end, you play with the toy, you, uh, you take out the toy, you play with the toy, you put away the toy. Mm -hmm. um, but you give everything a space. So they know where it is, they know how to clean up, and then they move on to the next thing. But if you have everything all over the place, they don't think about that. They just play, 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 play. And then they're mm -hmm. buried in, you know, army men and, mm -hmm. and, and dolls. Overstimulated. Overstimulated. It's really chaos in a way mm -hmm. too, right? And so the stat is that the average kid has approaching 300 toys on average and plays with, what, 12 weekly and, and so it, or daily or whatever the stat is. But regardless, it's, it, it's such a small portion of the overall and, and yet it's easy for to, to a kid especially to have all of that chaos strewn throughout their room and of course you're going to feel overwhelmed amid chaos and so if I look at this question differently it's not about mess so much as it, as it is about order and it's about um, taking the time to consciously think about where am I going to put things if I put my keys in a different pocket every time I misplace them. I can't. Oh my gosh, they're not here, mm. right? When I was a kid, I used to lose my keys all the time when I started driving. Mm. Uh, I'd go play basketball with my friends. I'd leave it on the court, or I'd go to the beach, and they'd. I was ended up finding my keys somehow, but I lost them so much mm. that I had a hanger that I used to put under the bumper of my car, so I could make a little hook and break into my <laughs> car, and I kept the spare key under the mat. And it worked. Wow. Yeah, it was great. Wow. It was great until my friends at school realized that I used to do that. And then every day at lunch, they'd move my car. And after school, I was <laughs> <laughs> wandering around looking for my car. But after I got married, my wife put a basket by the door. Mm. I haven't lost my keys in 25 years. <laughs> I come home, my keys go in that basket. It has a place. Yeah. Now I know how to uh, get into uh, your car. Well, not, <laughs> you can't break in as easy as we used to be able to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, what? when I think of Christian's question here, my brain goes to... Uh, reward and consequence. And so what, what you've covered is like, how do you help your children set up boundaries? How do you kind of help them understand not to be messy? But there's a certain point where, you know, maybe there needs to be a consequence or maybe you entice them with a reward. Like, I guess overall, like, how do you feel about, you know, consequence versus reward? When do you, when do you present consequences? When do you present the carrot? When do you present the stick? But I think cleaning up at, at this age, I think, did they say five or a young um, child? I don't think there was an so age here. Yeah. The, you know, when they're young kids, it's really about teaching. Mm. It's about, it's about learning. It's not about consequences because mm. they don't recognize right. it as a value or an important thing. Mm -hmm. It's when we're done with something, we put it away. And then we do something else. Mm -hmm. And that's a lesson we teach. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You want something else? Mm -hmm. like, let's clean up and then we can all go to the park. Mm. That's the reward. The reward is inherent in the next thing the that next they thing get th to do. Yeah. Um, now, if they're a 13-year-old 
and uh, grandma is coming over and you say, I need your room cleaned by three o'clock, mm-hmm. then, you know, you're going to have to stay there until you get that thing cleaned up. Mm-hmm. You're not going out with your friends. You're not doing whatever until you, you get that done. Oh, interesting. So what I'm hearing you say is, again, depending on the development stage, you offer the reward, which can be something as simple as just moving to the next thing, going to the park, eating dinner. Or uh, if a 13-year-old, maybe there is some kind of consequence of, well, now you have to stay in your room until it's clean. Yeah, it's not a punishment. It's right. just the reality is this is the priority. It has to happen before you get to do those other, until you before you go on the internet, before you, you mm. know, use your phone. This is what has to happen. Yeah. Yeah, each morning, Ella, she, and it's clockwork now. She brushes her teeth. She makes her bed. Mm. And she knows those two. She blow dries her hair. She gets dressed. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is she loves wearing dresses. So she'll like, first thing she does, she gets, gets up in the morning mm. and she puts on a dress. <laughs> God love her. Brushes her teeth, mm. makes her bed horribly, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go in there and remake it every morning? I, I, I yell at her and I say, you're never going to get into This heaven. is horrible. You didn't do the dishes right <laughs> last night. You didn't make your bed right this morning. No. Look, this quarter does not bounce off the bed. Oh, my goodness. No, I, I, I always, as horrible as it looks every time, it's always, a, hey, thank you so much for making your bed. Yeah. Great job. Right. Um, now, at some point, there will be, yeah, there'll, there'll, there'll be me showing her how to maybe improve that if she so desires because by the way making of the bed is simply my expectation Mm. it's not going to help her live better necessarily um i know jordan peterson wants you to clean your room and i want her to clean her room too but um and i understand the the psychology behind that but 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 it's important to realize that yes um making her bed brushing her teeth getting dressed in the morning. Those things have to happen before she can do the things that she wants to do, which mm. is always watching the Dragons videos. Um, <laughs> we got a question up top here from Maha. What tips do you have for kids with ADHD to become more organized and take the best advantage of their sensitive periods in their early age? So you probably experience this a lot. Sure. Yeah. Uh, first of all, kids with ADHD are kids, and it's the exact same lessons we're talking about. But because that prefrontal cortex that we've talked about that's responsible for organization and planning, because of that, tends to be about three years delayed mm. in kids with ADHD, you have to set realistic expectations. You can't, you can't you expect these lessons to be learned gradually and more slowly, mm. and you as a parent have to be even more consistent with your teaching. So it's really a lesson for the parent. I need to be patient. I need to be consistent. Just mm. because they haven't learned it right now doesn't mean they're not going to learn it, but it's going to take time, and I know my child's going to learn it, but I've got to teach it over and over again. Yeah, so it sounds like with you could apply that advice to really any disability that maybe a, a child has, just really kind of setting the proper expectations for where they're at in their development stage. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the, the diagnosis it does not have to become a a prison, right? And it sounds to me like when you when you're working with your patients, it's it's the opposite of that. You 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 want a diagnosis it helps you understand what's going on, but it's not creating the boundaries in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. So what yeah, what is ADHD? ADHD is difficulty paying attention to something for a long enough amount of time. Uh-huh. But that doesn't apply to everybody because there's some kids with ADHD who can uh, pay attention to things that interest them for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So is it that they get distracted more easily? 
Well, yeah, some kids get distracted more easily, but some kids with ADHD can hyperfocus. You can't get their attention. ADHD isn't just one thing. There's there's a series of different kinds of breakdowns that manifest differently in everyone, and we we um, lump it together with one label, and we put all these kids into one box Mm. just for statistical research purposes, more than really helping the child. Mm -hmm. Um, But but uh, the mm. reality is you have to understand your child's strengths and weaknesses within their attention. My wife will say to me all the time uh, that I don't listen. I, I want to listen. I really, really do. I just don't even hear her because I'm engrossed in whatever I'm doing. She'll say it and walk out the door and to go on a jog and leave the gate open. I'll let the dogs out. And she'll say, I told you not to leave the gate out. Mm. I mean, the gate open and the dogs will run down. I wouldn't have let it out if I heard you. So maybe mm. for somebody with ADHD, you have to change the way you communicate. You're ex- Did you hear what I said? Mm. Did you? If my wife would do that, I would do it. Yeah. I want to listen. And that's the same with kids with AD. Everybody wants to be successful. Mm. They don't want to make these impulsive mistakes and get in trouble. And But you have to communicate the way that they're ready to hear it. Yeah. Coming at it with a little bit of empathy, it sounds like, it would, yeah, it goes a long way. Well, I think, yeah, the, the, the compassionate thing uh, to do here is is... Is to, well, I, I like the thing I'm getting out of this whole conversation here is setting expectations with our kids is really about setting expectations with ourselves. Mm. And Tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and framing it that way really helps me understand that what we're really talking about is, is letting go of a lot of expectations, of control, of... Uh, the, we use the word hope in a very positive way. I don't. I think hope is a, a terrible, terrible thing, um, it, it, because it, it's tethering us to the future the way that I that uh, I use it. And so, um, it, I'm often hoping things work out to be this particular way, when the truth is, uh, here's how things are. And when I have a better understanding of how things are, I can adjust my expectations uh, accordingly. Um, as opposed to, well, I hope someday that this will, will change and I hope that this will be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being in the moment. You talk mm-hmm. about mindfulness a lot. Being in the yeah. moment as a parent is really important. And if you get caught up on the fact that something's not going right at third grade or fourth grade and, oh my gosh, my child is never going to make it or never going to survive in the world, this catastrophizing only um, makes brings your anxiety up and makes things worse. It's really mm. being in the moment. Is mm. this a big deal right now? And we yeah. catastrophize everything. Mm. And, 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 I mean, because the, the other thing is when we are in the moment, but then what we do is we take that little grain of sand and we turn it into a beach and not realizing like, oh, I'm so close to this right now. No, 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 no. I'm going a day from now. I'm not going to even remember the grain of sand. And I know it's such a, a bother in the moment. But in the grand scheme of things, it's quite literally nothing. And I'm so worked up by this. And oh, by the way, Ella's watching. So if I get worked up, she's getting worked up. And that's getting me wor- worked up. And then it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling cycle right we don't parent out of fear that's Mm. that's not helpful we don't we can't fear our child's boredom Mm. we can't fear our child's reaction or response that doesn't help it doesn't solve anything yeah yeah let's talk a little bit more about fear as we we wrap up here because I, i know that as a parent we have our own fears about our our kids most of them are 
nearly all of them are irrational outside of the safety concerns. Um, you know, safety is like the basic need sort of thing too, right? When, we, when Ryan and I talk about stuff and minimalism, we, we say everything that you own can fit in one of three categories. It's either essential, non-essential, or junk. The essential things are the same for all of us. You know, we all need some form of clothing and food and shelter and education and vocation. And it, th there are certain things that we need, safety. But then beyond that, it's sort of this, this non-essential, the things that add value to our life. And, and that could be, you know, I own a couch or I own a, uh, you know, a coffee table or whatever. Like, I don't need them so much as they add value to my life. Unfortunately, most of the things we own are in this junk category. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it, and the vast majority of it's junk, and it's actually getting in the way of the things that could add value to our life. When I think about parenting, and I try to map this onto parenting, I, I, I'm thinking about like many of the things that we're trying to do, we're trying to parent. It's like junk parenting in a way. And, and hmm. we, it feels virtuous or it feels noble, but it's actually getting in the way of the things that can bring joy and living and excitement and purpose to a child's life. Hmm. So uh, my book is, is published by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And, and I brought it to them with the idea. I said, you know, parenting is really hard. It is. It's hard. Even if you're the best parent in the world, parenting is hard. Hmm. Uh, and and I wanted to make this one part of parenting as clear and as simple as possible to bring it back to these basic steps that every parent can fall back on mm. when they're trying to raise their child to think for themselves. Mm. Yeah, the the necessary steps. The uh, yeah. And when we do that, we take away some of the fear. Yeah. Is is okay? Okay, I don't have to worry about that. Let's just come back to: Am I looking at the big picture? Am mm. are we? You know, helping my child learn to think ahead, to think for themselves, to plan. Yeah, man, I'm, I I'm not even a parent, and like I've gotten so much out of this. <laughs> like this is amazing. I can only imagine people listening to this and watching this who are parents. Um, this is so helpful. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to you know to share this message because I think I've got a good message. Yeah, you and do. I appreciate the opportunity to share it with mm -hmm. families. Yeah. I can't wait to share it with my wife. I'm going to ask for Sh Sean before this even comes out to get a copy of it and uh, send it over to Beck. So I, I think this has been great. You're welcome to come back anytime. I want to encourage folks to check out your book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Dr. Damon Korb, thank you so much for being yeah. here. My pleasure. Thanks for being you, man. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> the Minimalists. <laughs>